Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ribosome Podcast. My name is Luke Roberts, and today we're speaking with Dr. Joanna Silva. She's a postdoctoral researcher in the Ribosome Dynamics Lab at the Netherlands Cancer Institute. So uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, Joanna. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, finally getting out of the COVID times. So that's good. And getting back to a more normal rhythm of work, which is also nice, enjoying conferences and so on. But also just like the social life that we've all been missing. So I think now it's a good time compared with one year ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I agree. I agree for sure. It's been very, I, I'll admit, I've had a little bit of anxiety going back to some larger social gatherings. I found that my, and that my social battery is a little less, uh, I guess, large, a little smaller than it used to be. And that I find myself tiring out of social events a little earlier than I normally would have. I don't know if that's the same for you now. Yeah, same, same. I think entering lockdown was quite okay because yeah, I'm quite lucky with everything. We could keep our jobs and all of these things. Uh, then when we had the curfew, that was a bit tough because it's a bit weird to be able to, to be really like mandatory to stay inside. Uh, mm-hmm. But then getting out of the lockdown was quite hard uh, socially. And I'm quite social, but uh, yeah, I can understand where you're coming from. Yeah. I just wanted to start with how you got into science research. And so like, was it something that was sort of, you had like a really good teacher or something when you were young, or did you always just sort of gravitate towards STEM? How did you end up on sort of the path that leads you here? Yeah, so basically, I think since I was a kid, I was very curious. I always wanted to understand how things work. And I think the one person that influenced me was my great uncle that, yeah, Mm -hmm. he was quite active in my education. And I remember, uh, it's one of my earliest memories. I remember being four or five years old and just asking a lot of questions. And then my mom and some kids and all of yeah, uh, neighbors and so on, they kept saying, ah, you're always asking questions, like, don't be so weird. And just, yeah, go play. Uh, so I was feeling a little bit um, ashamed, you know, like you want to belong and you want to not be the weird person. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I remember my great uncle just told me that there's nothing wrong with asking questions. And actually, there is this <laughs> job that's like being a scientist. So you look into things that, yeah, you're just constantly asking questions about the unknown. And yeah, I think I was like, oh, that would be good. And I started getting a big interest in science and uh, in general, not in molecular biology or anything, but just like any science thing. Yeah. So I think it was just like curiosity since a young age, I would say. And then my uncle. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. It seems that everybody has sort of one key person they can sort of point to a little bit, right? Maybe not like one that did everything, but they always have at least one person that they can point to and say, this is somebody who encouraged this in me or this is somebody who demonstrated that this could be a possibility and it um you know just sort of open their eyes to you know the ability to do either science as a career or to not sort of like you mentioned shun that sort of behavior down and just sort of fit in um which hopefully we'll be able to do for people one day yeah hopefully we'll be that person yeah definitely yeah like you said your interest didn't start with molecular biology how did you sort of, is that something you sort of ran into in university? Was that something that came along during your PhD, maybe after? How did you get on this path to specifically, I guess now, studying cancers, ribosomes, RNA? Yeah, so I think during my master's, I started enjoying a little bit more because I did the master's in oncology and it involved a lot of mm-hmm. molecular biology and so on. Uh, And then I had the opportunity to go to a conference where I met some really nice people. 
from an institute in Barcelona, the IRB. Uh, and then I decided to apply for a position there as a PhD student. So it was, again, people that inspired me and I saw how many cool works and uh, projects they they were developing. So And I was lucky enough to then uh, get a position there and do my PhD there. So I think that's where the turning point was. Uh, the ribosomes was a little bit more now for the postdoc. So I touched briefly towards the end of my PhD in this topic, and then I wanted to mm -hmm. pursue it further. So then I joined Liam's group uh, here like almost five years ago uh, and yeah very happy studying these machines yeah okay that's interesting so for your last one you had an interest in ribosomes and you sought out a lab that was doing ribosomes yeah yeah um, as opposed to doing some people would do the opposite where they would just go to the lab and then whatever project was available they would sort of pick up right yeah but okay that's very interesting yeah I uh, no, yeah, I was just going to say, I applied for um, a, quite a few groups that were all working with uh, RNA translation and ribosomes. One of them was Gene, that was also uh, uh, one of your guests, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, and then ended up uh, staying in Amsterdam, mostly because of the people as well. So I think that's a key part, because topic-wise, I mean, there are so many groups doing amazing research. Uh, but then I really felt like the team spirit and uh, that I would flourish more in this environment. So in the end, the group had a lot to do with it. Yeah, and that that is a theme that I hear routinely throughout these is that there's lots of interesting questions. You know, there are no end to the interesting science questions. What there are is bad and good work environments. And so you can sort of, if you pick a good one, usually you end up having a much better time um, and you sort of, it's, you know, oh, if you didn't pick exactly the right question, that sort of doesn't matter because the unknown is sort of the exciting part anyway. Yeah, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. And so since we just talked about um, joining this lab and starting studying the ribosome, um, I saw that there was a recent publication that came out. Congratulations. Um, talking about intestinal stem cells and their ability to detect amino acid availability with the ribosome, which just as somebody who's studied ribosomes for, for a while, just seems like a bananas statement. We go, what? How? You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not what they do. Uh, and so I, I was just wondering if you could give us uh, sort of the talking points on this, like how did this come about? And did it seem at any point you know, when you're coming up with this statement now, were you like, oh, I must, I must have got something's wrong. Like, that's not what the ribosome does. Or did it, uh, I guess, I like hearing how these sort of stories sort of fell into place, um, you know, from the people who did, you know, you're not the sole author, but the, the, you know, the first author, the person who did most or some of the work, right, who was a, who was a collaborator. And so um, I'm just really interested to hear because it's a very, I don't know, to me anyway, it's a very unique story yeah so the idea the project uh, started in the way that i wanted to understand how translation was regulated in intestinal stem cells compared with differentiated cells um mm -hmm. and we were also quite interested in seeing uh because we studied the intestine in in our group uh, we were quite interested in seeing how amino acid deprivation could affect cell fate uh because mm -hmm. yeah the intestine is quite important in terms of nutrient sensing and there is a very fast uh, turnover of cells, so it's quite a nice model. Um, and we know that amino acid deprivation will also halt translation, so this is how it started. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then what we noticed was that when we were, um, we did this in intestinal organoids and other models, uh, we saw that when we were inhibiting amino acids, when we were depriving them, uh, the cells would turn from this adult stem cell state to a fetal-like mm -hmm. state. Um, mm. And the most interesting part is that when we, because science is never easy, when we try to see what were the pathways involved, none of the canonical well-known pathways in terms of nutrient sensing uh, seem to be playing a role. Like uh, we looked at all the known players and nothing seemed to matter. Uh, and then what we noticed was that because we wanted to make sure that this was not an artifact or anything, we used different ways of halting translation. Uh, and mm -hmm. we saw that regardless of the way that we were using, the important part was that we were just like inhibiting the ribosome as a machine. And then the okay. outcome was always the same. So that's how then we focused on the ribosome as the main sensor. And then this is what basically we found out was that the stem cells could use the ribosomes more than as like these passive machineries, uh, more as mm -hmm. molecular sensors that can detect that something is wrong. And then by activating a protein, SAC, uh, they could then trigger this uh, change in cell identity to a fetal state just to overcome the stress condition. And then they can revert back to an adult state once that is bypassed. I get what you mean with the um, far-fetched, yeah. crazy idea. But uh, for me, coming quite with the fresh eyes to the field with like ribosome biology and so on, because I didn't do much before, I always find that we have the tendency to look at them as these like passive machineries, right? They just like use the template that it's there and produce proteins. I mean, mm -hmm. very important function, but quite passive. Uh, and I always find it very weird because it's this massive machinery, very complex, composed with, I don't know how many proteins, uh, ribosomal RNA, it interacts with so many partners along the way. So I'm always like, I see it more as a dynamic um, machine, right? Like with mm -hmm. more unknown functions that we still don't know much about. Um, in addition to the, the canonical role. So that's actually what we are interested in the group is this more like non-canonical roles of ribosomes uh, and also mm -hmm. the idea of heterogeneity uh, within ribosomes and so on. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, very interesting. And I think, you know, you're correct in that it gets easy, you know, to be like, well, this is what ribosomes do. They take mRNA, they read it, they make a protein, and then like that's what's written in all the textbooks, that's what you read and know, and then even when you spend long enough in the field, you go, yeah, there's some exceptions, but it mostly just does this. Um, but more and more you see these, um, I've seen them described as moonlighting activities, um, being that proteins are doing something outside of their previously described function, and that it's probably just that we found all of the easy ones and you find like the big thing it does, which is make proteins. And then now that we have more sophisticated techniques and we understand more, you start realizing that things are extremely interconnected, even more so than we thought, right? Which just makes every, you know, which just, you know, every time you solve one question, it seems like there's 45 more that open up and you go, oh, great, you know, and you keep just going down that pathway. Um, and yeah, since you, I'd like to also touch on it briefly, just because I think it's super interesting. Uh, you mentioned, very briefly, talking about ribosome, ribosome, ribosome. I should at least get that one right. <laughs> ribosome heterogeneity, and so the idea that these ribosomes aren't all the same. Every time you're making one, they could have different, you know, slightly different compositions within reasonable limits, right? If you cut half the proteins out, it probably isn't going to work too well. 
Um, and I saw that you guys actually had a little bit of work on just understanding the protein composition of ribosomes based solely off ribosomal RNA sequencing, um, which also, again, I guess the, a theme of the lab, I guess for me as an outsider, is like these very interesting questions where I go like, how did they think about figuring that out? Like that seems like, oh, this is, you know, I guess to put this into a metaphor or I guess a simile, I, never, I guess I won't use like or as, so I guess a metaphor, it would be like, I guess trying to figure out what is in the food by looking at the pan or something. That's a not a perfect analogy. It's not. <laughs> it's not working very well at all. I'm trying to. It's. I'm. It's. I'm trying to find a good way to describe it. I guess for non-scientists, if, if you have one, I'm very open to it. But it's. It seems crazy that you go like, well, I'll just look at the RNA, and then that'll tell me what proteins are there. And you go, how? I'm like what? What? <laughs> And so it, it, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that, because I, 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 if, if I'm not getting it wrong, you were also um, working on that project. Yeah, yeah. So that basically started in uh, not a very romantic or ideal way, but yeah, it's the story as it is. So yeah, once again, science is not easy. So I was basically optimizing ribosome profiling in the lab. And even though it's mm -hmm. quite well established, I think everyone that works with it knows that it's still quite harsh to, to get like good reads and and all these things, and especially in the models that we were using at the time, in organoids and mm -hmm. all these things. So one of the major problems with this technique is that you have a lot of reads of ribosomal RNA that is coming. So you try to deplete them with kits when you prepare your libraries, uh, but we were struggling mm -hmm. a little bit with that. So every time I was sending my samples for sequencing, they had so many reads in the ribosomal RNA that then I couldn't have enough reads in the, in the uh, RPFs and so on. So yeah. uh, I was lucky enough to work together with this, with the, our bioinformatician that is a postdoc in our group, uh, Ferra Talkan, Ferro, <laughs> we call him, mm -hmm. and he's, he's very creative. So he started noticing um, what we were considering trash. So this was like the first paper that we published on it, was that these ribosomal reads that we were getting were very uh, common between replicates, but very different between different models. So it seemed that each different cell type or different model that we would use would have a very specific pattern of these reads. So mm -hmm. one of the first things that we, we did, and we published this as well, is we developed a tool to optimize kits for depletion of ribosomal RNA, depending on the model that you are using. So yeah, we right. published that like in two years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. But then that stayed a lot in our minds, especially Ferro, uh, and we started thinking that, okay, if we think about the protocol that we use for uh, ribosome profiling, where we are purifying the, the ribosomes and the mRNA that is attached to it being translated, uh, when we do the digestion with RNAs to get rid of anything that is not protected by a ribosome, we are also digesting a bit the ribosomal RNA that it's around. Mm -hmm. But anything that it's within the ribosome, protected by ribosomal proteins, is going to stay there. Yes. So we started having this idea that if the composition of the proteins is slightly different, different bits of RNA are also going to be more mm -hmm. or less exposed to digestion, and they're going to create these different patterns between the samples. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that was the, the main idea. And then he generated this uh, pipeline together with some collaborators uh, that he, they basically created a map with all the distances and positions between ribosomal proteins and ribosomal RNA. They did a 3D mm -hmm. model of this, 
And then based on that, you can uh, infer about which proteins might be more or less incorporated, depending on the right. patterns of reads that they have. Uh, and it's it's amazing because then, yeah, we were the benchmarking it and, and trying to validate it in different models. And it's it's quite accurate. So we are still quite amazed with it. Uh, but I guess it's the power of bioinformatic tools and predictions and all these things that as a bench person, it blows my mind. Um, mm -hmm. But this was mostly due to the effort of Ferru and also Liam, our group leader, that is always very excited about these questions and he lets us work on it in our personal extra time or yeah. whatever. Uh, that then ends up being a main project because we all get very excited about it. So, yeah, we're very lucky that everyone has mm -hmm. this curiosity driven um, approach to it. No, that's very interesting. Yeah, and it, reminiscent of you know, your, your basic uh, RNA structural probing, right? Looking at, you know, just how, you know, the RNAs, you know, are either in sort of helical structures or if they're bound to proteins and looking at the protection and instead of running them out in a gel, just using a sequencer, but obviously on a scale quite a bit larger because you're incorporating this huge 3D model of the ribosome and the proteins, but very, very interesting. And yeah, I think... Uh, you're right in that, you know, you're lucky to have a good bioinformatician. I know they're like, everybody's got one and not, I shouldn't say that everybody doesn't have one. Everybody wants one. That's what I meant. Um, and they're also, I, I think the one thing they need to do is um, really uh, understand their worth because um, they've been historically sort of like, oh, that's the bioinformatician. They're just doing a thing. They're running, writing a code. They're running the script. That's not they're not on the paper sometimes, right? There's a little bit of that I find in the field, which is obviously untrue. And I think probably one of the best things um, that I th think about when I talk to new people coming into the field um, that was you sort of highlighted there was the ability to just recognize those patterns and to think about them critically. And I, I think that's something that saved me a number of times is I, I have a distinct sort of feeling for what 30 microliters looks like in a pipette tip. You know, if you're just paying attention to that. And then when I grab something and I go, oh, that's not 30 that I've just sucked up. And I look at my pipette and I've got the wrong one. And I go, aha, I just saved myself. Like I saved this experiment because I was paying attention to what 30 microliters should look like. I think that, you know, if this bioinformatician just said whatever garbage and threw it away, this doesn't exist anymore. So I think that's a very, you know, a skill that I like to impose upon people. And I think this is a very very good example of that being put into practice. Yeah, I agree completely. It's just this uh, capacity sometimes depending on the job description mm -hmm. you have, the tasks that you do, like you were saying with the example of the pipette, and then you recognize or pay attention to patterns or details that for you are day-to-day -day life, let's say. And then even within mm -hmm. the topic, if then you have fresh eyes in a topic, yeah, you don't have any dogma or any preconception. So I think yeah, that just highlights the power of then also diversity <laughs> within each team. Yeah, uh, no, I, I yeah. agree. Yeah. And you, you said it well yourself where you said like, well, I hadn't done ribosomes, so I came in and said, well, why can't they be doing this, right? Yeah. And, you know, and everybody else goes, well, that's not what they do. And you go, why not? Everything I have says they do this. And so, I, you know, you're right. The diversity and, you know, um, of a team is very critical to success. And I would like just for a brief, you know, second, just say that 
even if those those patterns had been identified, if you had API or some sort of supervisor who was shutting down all efforts to look at that sort of stuff, wouldn't matter how good you were at identifying that. And so, again, going back to the working environment and the ability to allow people to be creative, um, I think is very important. And since we just sort of touched on it already in, in a little brief way, I'd like to stray away maybe from the hard science and go into a little bit more of the stuff that um, you seem to be equally passionate about, which is sort of that intersection of science and society, as well as uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in science. And so uh, you're very active on Twitter, at um, the Joanna Silva, if anyone wants to follow, I would recommend it. Um, and I've, through going on there, I see that you're part of the Ivory Embassy, um, could you tell the listeners a little bit about what that is and why you got involved? Yes, yeah, so that was a project that was uh, from a PhD student at the same institute that I'm now. Uh, so we started it mm -hmm. and it's a blog um, to discuss several scientific topics, but aimed at the general audience. So it's a lot about science communication mm -hmm. and public outreach and so on. So I was quite um, happy to always read about it and give my feedback and so on. So then eventually I became part of the of the team, which was me and him at the time, uh, and yeah. wrote a few posts and so on. Unfortunately, uh, I stopped with it because of during mm -hmm. COVID, it was quite hard to just keep up with everything. Uh, so I'm right. not doing it anymore, but he co is continuing um, and is actually reshaping the blog now. So I think it will be very nice, but it was a very nice experience. We also did some um, science communication shows where we were discussing different uh, things, which was called like the shit show. Uh, I saw that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that yeah, was, it was, uh, yeah. What was it? Yeah. It's, it's, oh, the science health information talk show. So a very well acronymed show. Um, yeah, very catchy. Uh, yeah, I, if if anyone is you know a general listener, I, I could highly recommend the Ivory Embassy. There's a lot of interesting blog posts on there, and they're they're very they're very quick reads and they're very digestible. And so you know it's the whole point. You can tell they're written well and they're done. Um, and I specifically like the one um, that you did about uh, sex and gender. Um, I read that one, and I think especially for anyone who's I guess a parent, anyone who's sort of as we have our changing societal landscape, as we seem to now are be redefining, you know, I guess the typical views of sex and gender, which have always, they, these things have always existed. It's not like in the last couple of years, these have all just been invented. It's just that they've been shoved into one box or another. And so now it's, it's I, I think that one's a very good read. Um, and so there's a small plug for that. Because I think it's a very uh, another very good science, uh, I guess, dissemination tool, um, and so that's some of the stuff you've done with um, disseminating science. The other thing that I'd like to talk about is just sort of um, your efforts on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, I guess, in addition to being active on Twitter, uh, you know, and active on social media. What would you recommend to young scientists as a way to foster and encourage um, this sort of environment and these sort of initiatives at their local meetings, at their institutes? Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I would say that if your institute has one of these uh, committees that is focused on these issues, I strongly advise for you to take part on them because even if you think that 
you are uh, sensitive enough already and um, aware of certain things. I think once you are actually mm -hmm. more exposed to them, at least for me, it really opened my eyes to so many more um, situations and things that uh, I didn't know so much about. So I think it's a constant learning experience and educating yourself right. constantly. Plus, I think it's about also um, not just being uh, empathetic towards things and yeah, wanting to help, but actually helping and having an, an active mm -hmm. role. Um, so I think it's very, yeah, very important to just try to, to be part of it. And if your institute doesn't have one of these committees like ours didn't, you can start one. And, uh, and go, yeah, yeah, I think it's also a good way. I mean, it's a lot of work, but uh, it's definitely a very important cause. So I'm very happy to, to do it. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're say you're at an institute that doesn't have one of these and you're thinking about starting one, um, uh, you feel free to reach out uh, to uh, myself or uh, Joanna. We, you know, either one of us can point you in the right direction. Obviously, she's on a committee now. She can tell you a bit about how they run and what you need might want to get thinking about. And then obviously, and I am not on any committees, but I know a lot of people that I would point you to. And so um, I think that those continue to be important. And it I don't know. I see in some circles that people sort of think of it as a solved problem and they go, well, yeah, we just have these initiatives and you do this and you offer certain amounts of funding, but it's still uh, taking like uh, Joanna mentioned there, or said, like you mentioned, a, a passive seat to like, oh yeah, no, we're empathetic and we've set up some programs. These things are constantly evolving um, and they're constantly in, if you're not out there, on the front lines actively encouraging and doing that stuff because you can have all of the grants you want if your institute is full of a bunch of um very sexist old men doesn't matter how many grants you have through they're going to come in for their undergrad and they're never going to get you know promoted out of grad school to any sort of professorship you know sort of position right and so um i think the the advice of getting a committee and getting some sort of you know, grassroots power is is a, is a very good place to start. Um, and one other thing I, I really wanted to talk to you about, because it's something I think about a lot, is sort of the plastic problem science has and sort of the waste problem. Because it, as much as we love science, it's easy to be like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm doing these excellent experiments and these will help people. Sometimes when you just like crush eight pipette tip boxes and you go, Jeez, this is like a kilogram of plastic that I used each one of them once and now I'm throwing them away and they're going to be autoclaved and put in a landfill probably. Um, I've saw that you've started a green labs initiative at your institute and I was just wondering, I guess I'd love to hear about it because it's something I'm very interested in, I guess, championing here and hopefully some other people can take away from this and start some of these initiatives at their own places. Yeah, uh, it's a topic that I think lots of us are becoming more aware because, yeah, we are just going in a very wrong direction. Uh, I think the term sustainability, it's not even uh, accurate anymore. We cannot even sustain what we are doing. We need to really make a difference. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was exactly what you were saying. Like sometimes at home we try to recycle and uh, not put the heater on and all these things. And then if, within a month, maybe we accomplish, uh, we have the same impact than like one hour in the lab or I don't know, like sometimes right. it's massive. So I'm always like, okay, everything now uh, just, just went sideways. So yeah, again, we didn't have a green team uh, in, in our institute. And it's something that in the Netherlands is growing quite a lot and within Europe as well. 
Um, so I started reaching out to people that were also passionate about this. Um, and I got in touch with some people that belong to the LEAF Association that started in London. So this is an amazing resource for people who are interested. Uh, if you just go to their website, uh, you will find yeah, a lot of information on which measures you should implement in your lab, which are the readouts you can have um, to, to see which sections you can improve. Because in addition to plastics, you also have so many other things, like you have the energy consumption, which is crazy, the amount of water that it's used uh, that people are mm -hmm. not aware, um, the traveling to conferences, to right. all these things. So there are so many uh, ways that you can improve with such little changes in behavior. And when it comes to the plastics, because it's one that we all notice, um, one of the things that I think played in our favor during pandemic, maybe one of the few things, is that because of the shortage mm -hmm. of plastics, people actually learned how to behave a bit differently in the lab. And then maybe you can mm -hmm. pipette first the water and then the buffer that is made with the water with the same pipettes. Right. And, stuff like that so uh i was i i wanted to like take that wave and just like okay let's keep this behavior even when we have access to all the plastic we want so um, yeah we started this this team it's officially starting now in september because first we were just doing some pilot uh trials and tests and so on to show that we have a problem so that then the institute is convinced that needs to support this um right. and now finally yeah we got a team of like i think we are 11 or 12 people so I think we will try to wow. just implement some changes. I'm excited about it. Yeah. No, that's good. I, and I look forward to sort of hearing um, the changes you're implementing because I think, you know, it's not like those changes that you're going to be implementing are going to, you know, be very, very specific to your institute. There's going to be a lot of good general advice that I think will be very easy for other places to sort of mimic, um, you know, and I think that's, you know, and they should be, right? It's not. I, and I think you would want them to. You wouldn't want them to not use the things you developed at other institutes. Okay. All right, uh, Joanna. Yeah, thanks uh, so much for your time. I guess one final wrap-up question is uh, sort of what's next for you now? Do you imagine yourself continuing on in the sciences and academia? Do you imagine yourself going into industry? Do you have your sights set on a PI position? Um, or, you know, maybe you just want to see where the cancer research takes you. Um, um, what are your plans? What are your goals? Yeah. Where are you going from here? Yeah, so I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, I guess that a lot of people will relate to this. Like in academia, we are always constantly changing and mm -hmm. uh, moving and so on. So sometimes it can be a bit, at least for me, overwhelming uh, that you, yeah, you can have so many options um, right. or lack of sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so basically, yeah, I'm wrapping up some projects uh, as a postdoc now uh, with Liam and also I'm lucky enough that is allowing me to play a little bit more now during these next few months on my own ideas and what I would like to follow right. if I stay in academia. Um, so yeah, uh, I have to say that I, I'm not a fan of the academic system. I think it's very flawed in so mm -hmm. many different ways, um, but at the same time, I also think that this new generation is making things better. So hopefully if we all yeah. give up, nothing right. is going to improve. Right. So yeah, that gives me a little bit of hope to continue, but then I have it uh, quite clear in my mind what I would like to pursue. So I would like to focus on mitochondrial translation okay. a little bit because I feel like it's, yeah, it's a field that it's not growing as much due to technical difficulties. Um, but I think there is a lot right. there. 
Um, so yeah, I'm quite interested in pursuing that. So yeah, Liam is giving me the opportunity to just do some experiments, see what I can get. Uh, and then depending on how that pans out, um, hopefully next year I will start either uh, getting ready for the next step and looking for the positions uh, in academia or then just letting it go and looking for something else because I don't know, there are so many things that excite me. I think it will be fine regardless, yeah. I hope. <laughs> and maybe but, hopefully uh, at yeah. that point, you know, if you decide you're done with it, there are some large institutes that are looking for you know, driven people to really steer some powerful, you know, DEI committees or some very powerful green initiatives. And so I think, uh, you know, if, if you decide to get out of academia, I think the continual, you know, pressure for that to continue will be uh, hopefully some sort of avenue. Hopefully it can be, you know, within your interests, you know, that would what everyone would want. Hopefully it's not something you hate, but I, I, I'm not too worried. It seems like your interests are varied, and uh, as long as there's some unknown to be answered that or some problem to solve, it seems like you're going to be having a good time. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right. Uh, yeah, so thanks again um, for agreeing to do this. It was it was great to chat. No, thank um, you for having and me. And if uh, people want to get a hold of you to talk about any of these exciting things, is Twitter the best way? Um, email what, what do you prefer yeah i would say twitter is always the best way um because even with emails and so on you sometimes change institutes or all these things right uh Spam I, filters yeah exactly uh i also mm. check linkedin quite often so that's okay. also a way um but yeah twitter twitter is a good one okay great thanks so much yeah thank you thank you so much joanna Joanna Silva is a postdoctoral researcher in the Ribosome Dynamics Lab at the Netherlands Cancer Institute. If you have comments or suggestions, write to us. Our email is theribosomepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at theribosomepodcast. This show is produced by Liana Boras, Simon Hoser, Malko Zata-Hozelska, and myself, Luke Roberts. Thanks so much for joining us. Keep your bench clean and your RNA pure.